Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Dan Santat is an author and illustrator. He's also a hilarious dude. I've been lucky enough to be his friend since we collaborated on my book, No More Poems, which he did the illustrations for fantastically. The way in which we entered into our collaboration offers a lesson in itself. I heard him on a podcast, specifically the first draft podcast hosted by the great Sarah Innie, um, previous guest of Wheels Off, Ben Acker had been on that podcast and told me it was awesome and I should listen to it. And I did. And there was this guy, Dan Santat, who was a children's book author and illustrator. I listened to him talk. I was fascinated by his personality, his quirkiness, his drive, his love, clear love of what he does. So I went to my editor, Megan Tingley at Little Brown, and I said, I heard this illustrator that I think would be perfect because at the time we were trying to figure out whom we would hire to illustrate no more poems. And she said, well, that would be great. But Dan Santat is pretty much the biggest illustrator in the business. I just, I don't know if we're going to be able to land Dan Santat. And I said, well, we can ask, right? And it turned out that he is a big music fan. He, I guess, is a fan of my books. Um, he, of course, like a lot of people, is a big fan of Megan Tingley, my editor. And I guess he liked the poems that I'd put together because he said, yes, this ungettable guy is the guy we got. I did not get to make his acquaintance until after all the artwork was finished for the book. Perhaps that was by design. Maybe they like to keep the illustrators uh, unreachable by the authors so that we don't harass them. Uh, although... I don't know what I would have said when they showed me his very first mock-up ideas. I, I thought it was a finished thing. I said, yes, go to print. This is fantastic. But, of course, Dan went in and made it so much even better than it was in those first drafts. Dan Santat is widely known 
perhaps best known for his book, The Adventures of Beagle, the Unimaginary Friend, for which Dan won the 2015 Caldecott Medal for Distinguished Illustration. I grew up in libraries, didn't have a lot of friends. My friends were books. I was a giant fan of any book that won the Caldecott. I would seek out every year the Caldecott Medal winning book, uh, books and and f- love them and live with them and devour them. And the fact that Dan won that is pretty crazy, especially when you meet him and figure out that he's like a really sweet, normal, down-to-earth person. And this award, while validating him, hasn't ruined him. Uh, I think all of this will become quickly apparent when you listen to this interview. He's he's a good dude. He's really funny. He's really passionate about what he does. But at the same time, he takes life very... Um, he takes it easy, you know? He goes with the flow. He's a Southern California guy, and I think that comes through pretty obviously. I feel like I've learned a lot just by being around him. Certainly, when we do our joint visits to schools to present our book to kids, I've learned a lot by watching the way he deals with kids. And it sort of validates the way I've always thought people should approach talking to kids. You just talk to them like they're people. Don't talk down to them. Don't baby talk them. Just talk to them. The jokes that will make these kids laugh are the jokes that make... Our friends laugh for the most part. You gotta watch your language, maybe a little bit of the content, but in the end, these kids are people and watching Dan interact with them made me love him even more. I think you'll really enjoy this episode of Wheelsoft featuring the great author, illustrator, commercial illustrator, badass dude, Dan Santan. Welcome to Wheels Off, Dan Santat. Hey, thanks for having me in my, is, in my home. <laughs> thanks for having me in my home. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. No big deal. I, I like to entertain here a lot. <laughs> I had to do some cleaning before you came. I'm sure my wife was just like, uh, you can't let him see like clothes dangling around. It's, it's quite nice, but it also, it's really, it's a warm house. I can see into your office from here. Yeah, yeah. Very well lived in. I am, I am Mr. Mom, so if there's any mess... I'm sure my wife will be listening to this later. So if there's any mess, it's all my fault. It's on you. <laughs> it's all on me. Um, so, Dan, what creative project or projects are you working on now and how is it lighting you up? Um, well, I'm currently in the process of illustrating six picture books from other authors. Uh, you know, there's like Brad Meltzer. Uh, there, I, I just re-illustrated the 90th anniversary of The Little Engine That Could. Uh, you know, Dolly Parton wrote the foreword for it, and I'm supposed to go out to Dollywood and like do some signings out there. And I think, to my understanding, I think they're she's trying to work her schedule around so that I might actually get to meet her, which is pretty cool. Um, I'm illustrating another picture book from an SNL writer from uh, he was in that skit troupe, uh, The Lonely Island, yeah, yeah, uh, Yorma Takone. Mm-hmm. He, um, if you watched that movie Hot Rod. He's the he's the little brother. He's a little brother to Andy Samberg. Uh, and like he called me out of the blue and was just like, hey, I have a picture book idea. I'm Yorma Takone. And I'm like, 
I was not expecting this call. He just called me out of the blue. And he was just like, yeah, uh, you worked with my mom. She's an art director up in the Bay Area. Like, you worked with her, like, 15 years ago. I'm like, oh, okay. And then, like, that's how that went off. Uh, but then, like, personal projects. Uh, I'm working on a memoir graphic novel. Uh, and that one's been, that one's been working on, I've been working on that for a while. That one is uh, about the first time I ever fell in love while I was on a three-week trip around Europe after junior high and just entering high school. Uh, I've got a picture book that I'm uh, writing right now uh, about uh, a black cat and just the whole, it explores the idea about stereotypes and why this black cat is just considered unlucky. Basically just for being born, it just feels like it's been put into this position where like, oh, I guess people view me this way because of the color of my fur. Wow. Uh, and then I'm also working on another graphic novel that I signed like 10 years ago. And I just never got around to finish because I've just been working on so many other projects that I just keep shoving my own projects aside. So I'm trying to wrap that up. It's called The Aquanaut. This is so much. It is. It is a lot. I had to move two books off of uh, the next season because I just got a little overwhelmed. Like this summer alone, between the months of, I think it was probably like the months of uh, May till now, I finished four picture books. Like I'm wrapping up two right now, just like getting the covers done. And you guys had a vacation in the middle of that. Did you have to work on the... Um, I try not to wait. Yeah, we have a place in Hawaii and I try, I try not to bring work to Hawaii when I, when I have to, but this time I did. Uh, and I try to keep it pretty light. I don't, I don't work as effectively on the road. Like I'll, I'll bring like an iPad and then I'll do sketches, but I never do any like detailed finishes with like highlights and shadows and things like that. Uh, usually I like to spend that time writing. So I'll do a lot of writing, uh, because you know, you just work on a laptop and you open Word and then you have access to your Dropbox account and, you know, you can pull things in, that, in and out. But, you know, when I'm drawing on, say, like an iPad surface as opposed to like on my you know Wacom tablet at home, just the slight shift in like the kind of pen that you're using or the surface of the glass, you know, it, it makes a huge difference. And it's almost... It's almost like it's almost like if you were to drive someone's car and the brake on that other car is really stiff and yeah. you just have to kind of get used to it and it, it, it takes a couple of days so you know I usually just try to uh just do like rough work while I'm on the road. Do you find that that inspires like a different uh you you're accessing like a different creative part of your brain when you're working with different medium like that? Um yeah, I mean as the years have gone on um, I, I've actually found that working digitally has gotten a little stale. Like I'm kind of sick and tired of going through the same, same routines over and over again. And so I've, I've actually gone back and revisited going back and using old traditional medium. And of course, you're, you're navigating a different path in that sense where if you are putting a line to paper in a, a sketchbook, you know, that that line is forever because it's mm. in pen. And so you're looking at it more like a chess match where you're looking 10, 10 moves ahead. Uh, with, with a computer, you know, you have this luxury of, you know, hitting the undo button and you can go back as far as like 
30, 40 <laughs> strokes. And you're like, you know what? Let's just go back in time and let's redo that over again. <laughs> now, there's some benefits to that because uh, I remember early in my career when I was really... Um, there was this moment where I wanted to evolve out of having like this student kind of work and I wanted to evolve more into just finding who I wanted to be as an artist, uh, knowing that that history button was there to go back because you made a horrible mistake actually gave you the freedom to, to, to experiment and take risks. Um, so there are benefits to that. But now I kind of find, I don't know, there's something weird. I've been in this business for 16 years and I, I am now really embracing like making mistakes and not even necessarily fix like not necessarily covering up the mistakes. Like I want, there's something about seeing the history of the work on a piece of paper and you just want to leave it and you want to work around it and make it integrate into the piece. Cause you know, there's something that communicates your thought process in the whole thing. And I find that it's not about, it's not about the quality. It's not about like, having a nice polished piece but it's 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 more about wanting to evolve as an artist and just saying well what else do i have to say like what more do i want to say i want to get deeper and so now you know here i am in my in my mid 40s i'm just like you know i just i, I mean i want to make a beautiful product but at the same time i'm sick and tired of doing the same thing over and over again so as a result i find myself going away from the computer and more to the traditional medium because it just forces me into a position where i and prone to making mistakes, and I, I love it. I wonder. There's such a there's such an equivalent situation in music where perfection is so accessible to everyone. Like you can mm. you can make you know pitch shift every note so that every note is perfect. Right. You can line up every drum beat to be mm-hmm. you know, and it's so it's kind of the same thing that you're talking about. And and I have found that the music that I really love and the music I wind up making tends to be the music where the human element is intentionally left in all the way through yeah. you hear the mistakes you when you, know. you were when you were when you were a kid did you used to like trade tapes from like recordings at concerts and things like that sure just hearing just hearing a band do something like oh this is how they did it in louisiana this is how they did it in seattle um yeah like there's recordings that you know you get that you don't hear from you know the regular EP and and then you hear it in in you know they just decided to like maybe mix in you know a lead in from another song and then just go right into the song which is really it's just really exciting to hear them you know experiment like that and also um, yeah like like I find that I find that with art it's it's I'm getting to a point in my career where it's not that I don't. I mean, I definitely can't. My audience are children, so whatever I do, it's always going to be exciting to them uh, because their minds are so fresh and young that it's just like, I've never seen this before. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, there is there is this point where I've kind of seen it among my peers where you'll see them publishing books and then their sales don't seem to be as robust because... I think the consumer feels like they're hitting the same notes over and over again. And then you say, well, if I've already bought this book, then I kind of bought them all. Yeah. Um, and so as much as I'm mindful about, you know, reading to kids, I'm also very mindful about their parents or a teacher or a librarian and just kind of 
I want to stay in this place where people don't know what to expect from me. I guess it's just a really great place to be. Um, and typically, like as artists go, I remember, I remember being in art school, and then you would talk to teachers who were gallery artists, and they would do a body of work, and then it would, and then, but that was like the first time I really experienced how trends come and go, and that was when I realized, oh, I don't want to be a style because styles can get stale really fast, and mm-hmm. it just depends on how well, you know, how quickly the zeitgeist of pop culture changes. Um, and I actually took more of a philosophy of advertising where. Uh, they take a design approach of form follows function and you would get a manuscript. And I remember early in my career, I used to be the funny manuscript guy. Like I used to get all the funny ones. Or I, I actually ended up in this weird place where I was doing like these action pack manuscripts where mm-hmm. like Red Riding Hood was a ninja and she's beating <laughs> up the wolf with Kung Fu. And, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you never saw that kind of stuff in picture books. I just ended up in this weird place that I, I loved but over the years you know you get tagged as oh he's the funny action book guy and then those are all the manuscripts that you would get and then it wasn't until I wrote uh, my book The Adventures of Beagle where it was really heartfelt and it was never the type of manuscript that anyone would have ever expected from me and I remember I remember the first review I got in Publishers Weekly and they said uh I was expecting this to be funnier, so uh, it really didn't meet my expectations, and so therefore I did, I did not like the book. Anyway, for those of you who don't know, it ended up winning the Caldecott Medal, and so who had the last laugh there? Yeah, and but then but then after that, it kind of just opened up a door. Now uh, suddenly, everyone saw me in a new light, and they said, "Oh, he can do really heartfelt manuscripts with like yeah. really deep, meaningful messages and things like that." And so, um, you know. That's kind of the fickleness of the consumer or the readers, you know, like sometimes they love something. They just want the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And then on other other hands, like they're not they're not willing to see something new from you. And then you have to show them that you're capable of doing it or they just simply get bored with you. And then they move on to the new young hip thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a yeah, I don't. I don't know about you, but I kind of, I, I do this thing where I look at my peers. I look at people who've been in the business longer than I have. You know, your Chris Van Allsburgs, your John Sheskas, your, you know, people who've been in the business for years and years, you know, Eric Carl. And I, my mind has shifted. It used to be that, you know, it was like, I want people to know my work. I want people to know who I am. And now it's shifted into... I don't want to be in a place where 20 years from now, I have a book that comes out and nobody cares. You know, like there's there's this weird, I don't know if it's a midlife crisis or what, but there is this part of me that is all about maintaining relevance and doing work that still excites people. And I've always taken it upon myself to write picture books that are conceptually you know, full of excitement in the sense that it's it's very easy to consume, but it's also very just, um, again, I'm going to use the term form follows function. Like you look at it and you say, oh gosh, why didn't I think of this idea? Like, like I did a book called After the Fall and it's about what happens after Humpty Dumpty falls from the wall. 
now, in advertising, there's a term known as symbology. You know, you 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 take you take an image, and that image should immediately elicit some kind of emotion or some idea. So, if I were to draw a picture of a light bulb, mm-hmm. you would think of an idea. Like you would say, "Oh, that either means power or it means an idea." If I just say Humpty Dumpty, that immediately makes you think of the fall. He's pretty much synonymous with that fact. So, as a result. If I just said I'm doing a book about Humpty Dumpty, everyone automatically already knows that he fell from a wall, and that's already solved like the first act of the story for me. And now I can spend the rest of the time talking about his recovery. Um, if I just say black cat, everyone already is, already knows that it means bad luck. I can spend the rest of the time, you know, talking about well, what is this predicament that we have for this cat, and how how does it affect this particular cat's life? So you're letting symbology do the work. Especially for picture books, yeah. And in, in terms of picture books, because you only get 32 pages in a mm-hmm. picture book, 32, 40 pages. Uh, so I, I handle it much differently than when I handle older content, like a graphic novel or a middle grade novel. You know, like older, older stuff, you know, it's all about the character. It's very character driven. It's all about, you know, the plot and the choices the character makes and the struggle within that, you know, a reader can relate to. With a picture book, you can still embody those things, but you really can't, you know, get as in-depth because it's only 32 pages. So what I typically do when I write for picture books, I try to embody an idea. And then rather than rather than start with a main character and try to write a story based on that idea, I take the I take the idea and I say, what is the best device I can use uh, as a counter to the idea so that you create conflict in the story. And I think it's a very backwards way of thinking as, than most writers do. I think most writers think about a character and then they put them in a setting or, a, you know, on, in a conflict. Whereas I think of the conflict and I say, what is the best symbol to be the counter to this conflict? I love that. God, I love the the way the black cat sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think your origin story is so interesting, <laughs> uh, but I I mean I think it, I think it's the kind of story that could be really useful. Um, at what age do you think? What age do you remember uh, first, like knowing in your soul that you you wanted to do art? It's funny. I I. I clearly remember when I was a kid, I remember looking through a Time magazine and there was an old Norman Rockwell painted ad for like health insurance or something like that or like a financial, yeah, I don't remember what it was, but I remember I remember taking out a piece of paper and breaking out my Crayola crayons and trying to copy this Norman Rockwell piece just with like, you know, like 12 Crayola colors, you know, and I'm trying to color it. And it was like, it was like a painting of like a, it was a painting of like a cottage or something like that. And then I tried painting and I remember a half hour or maybe like, yeah, a half hour into it. I was just in tears. I was so frustrated with myself. <laughs> and I remember my dad coming up to me and saying, why are you cr- like, why are you crying? And I said, because I can't, can't copy Norman Rockwell with these crayons, these stupid crayons. <laughs> And I remember my dad saying, you're never going to be Norman Rockwell. He's Norman Rockwell. Like, and you have crayons. Like, you no, just keep, no, just keep trying. And I remember like my dad saying that. And I remember thinking of it as like, like a challenge. Like, I'll, sh- I'll show you. <laughs> and I remember art was like my favorite thing to do at school. 
um, you know, they'd say, "Oh, color in this, color in this、uh, turkey, and we'll give you a star." And I wouldn't stop there. I'd, I'd color the turkey, you know, I'd put details in the feathers, and then like with the white space around this piece of paper, like I'm I'm drawing like an entire cornucopia of you know like Thanksgiving foods and stuff like that. And、um, and my、uh, I remember my teacher. We were at an we were at a we were at a parent teacher conference, and they said, "You know, your son has he's." Quite gifted in art, like you might consider, you know, him going into the arts. You know, my parents are from Thailand. They were,、uh, you know, my father was a doctor, my mother was a nurse, and、uh, you know, they, you know, they straight up were just like, no, no, he's gonna, he's gonna grow up and be a doctor, just like me, <laughs> you know. And there was this, there was this, I was being deprived of this, of this thing that brought me joy, you know, and.、I, And then、uh, I remember around third grade, my、um, my high school library—I mean, my、uh, my gr- my grade school librarian—you know, she 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 saw me come in for、uh, into the library, and she said, "Well, Mr. Santat, now I know your parents because my parents never let me take art classes." So she says, "Mr. Santat,、uh, I know that your parents won't let you take art classes, but that doesn't mean you can't check out books to teach yourself how to draw." And she gave me this book,、uh, "How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way," and I remember checking that out. And I just I looked at it cover to cover, and it can't, it covered all the basics. It was like how to draw a stick figure, how to draw a stick figure punching. Now you're going to take that stick figure and you're going to give it mass. You're going to you know make an oval for the torso. You're going to draw cylinders for the arms. And then you start, you know, you're fleshing out these characters, and then now we're going to start drawing muscles, and then we're going to start putting a costume on it. We're going to do facial expressions. And, you know, before you know it, you're drawing Captain America like punching the Red Skull in the face, and I checked that out so many times that you know she eventually let me keep it, and it was my it was my copy. I yeah, she she's like you 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 clearly love this book. This book is now yours.、Um, I actually I actually just bequeathed it to my son because he he wanted a drawing book, so I gave him that book.、Um, but. But there was just this weird thing where you go to school and just having the ability to draw—it was like you had some kind of magic trick. You know, people were like, "This guy can draw. He can draw puppies and stuff." And so, you know, you'd have you'd have people coming up like, "Oh my gosh, I don't. I have an art assignment due, but you know, like, I don't want to draw anything stupid. So, like, I'll trade your history homework." If you draw me, you know, like、uh, <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell or something, like okay, you know. And so, and so,、um, you know, I kind of found it as like this, like, like almost like this thing that helped me with my social life. Yeah, you know, hey, go to Dan. He can draw. He can draw ducks and stuff. You know,、um, and then it wasn't until I got to college. I got to college. I went to a four-year college to get a microbiology degree,、mm. and all my friends in college, they basically were looking at my notes and they're just like. You know, you really should go to art school. Like you don't belong here. And then they they kind of convinced me to apply to art school. I got into art school, and on my graduation day, I told my parents,、uh, "I'm going to go to art school." And I thought they were going to kill me, but they were like, "Oh, well,、uh, well we just want you to be happy."、Uh-huh. And yeah, I went to art school, and it was kind of like my coming out party. Like I'm meant to be an artist. I feel like an artist inside, and so.、Um, Yeah, it was weird because it was also it also coincided about with like my feelings as a person. Like I didn't really like myself for a long time because it's like 
I have to grow up and be this doctor and it's the last thing on earth I want to do. But I kind of felt like it was my destiny because my parents told me it was my destiny. Mm. And so when I finally was given permission to be an artist, like that was, I think that was like the first time in my life I really expressed like true, true happiness. Like I could be myself. Like it was just crazy. It was just like like a long 22 year moment where they just said oh oh you just want to be an artist oh, okay why don't you say it sooner oh i've been saying it my whole life mom and dad <laughs> like now <laughs> that's so yeah. glorious and simultaneously heartbreaking at the same time no at so- the same time you know like because my kids they've expressed art and you know as an artist you know how hard it is to make a living oh. and the funny thing is that you're looking at your kids saying, <laughs> you sure you don't want to be a doctor yeah <laughs> <laughs> My kids both came to me pretty early and said, no offense, Dad, but I am not doing music for a living. And I was like, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to really want it to do this kind of a job. Yeah. No, I say that to anybody. I say that to any artist or someone who's interested in it. Just, you know, if you're going to do this, you, ha- you have to be passionate about it. You have to know that you would still do this even if you were starving. Like, that's yeah. how you know you're passionate about it. It's the first thing you want to do. Yeah. So since then, since that that moment of coming out and, and that moment of sort of a fundamental happiness, mm-hmm. um, you've you've done a lot, you've accomplished so much. But do you feel like there are still like really difficult moments for you? Do you feel like you have these internal self generated obstacles that you run up against? Because to me, you feel you seem very confident and and relaxed. But I'm sure there must be stuff that you have to overcome. Um, yeah, yeah. So I I think, no, no. So early on in my career, I remember, gosh, uh, I graduated from art school in 2001. And then like two years out of art school, I sold my first cartoon show, like my only cartoon Mm. show to Disney Channel. And then in 2006, it aired. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like I've been out of art school for about five years and I've already reached what I think is my zenith. You know, like this is, this is it. Like everything else is downhill from here. Um, and I thought it was funny because I thought having this cartoon show was going to be absolutely fulfilling. Like, oh my gosh, this would be the best feeling in the world. And there was this weird feeling of like, oh, I remember, I remember distinctly, like the day it premiered on TV, I remember watching it on TV and my first thought was, I expected to, f- I was going to feel happier. I thought, I thought it was going, I thought I was going to be a lot happier when this happened. And instead the thought was, well, what's next? What can I do next? Mm. Um, and I was working in video games and that wasn't really fulfilling to me. I mean, I left the show after the first season and cause I just, I didn't like dealing with the executives at Disney. I just wanted to, I just wanted to write and illustrate stories. And I think what really quenched my appetite for my own ambitious desires. Now, the thing about ambition is that it can be a horrible curse because if you set a goal for yourself and you achieve that goal, there's like a moment where you're like, oh, I've I've accomplished all that I've wanted. But then like that ambition comes back and it says, well, what's next? What's the next thing you want to do? (laughs) And it's just, it's just frustrating. So the cartoon show is one thing. And then I remember right after that, like the goal that I wanted was I wanted to firmly establish myself in children's publishing so that I could just live off of doing children's publishing. 
after I left the show, I illustrated a book and then like that book went on to win a silver medal at the Society of Illustrators. And then after that, the phone rang off the hook and I was like, okay, I'm set. And it was like maybe like a year after the show, like I left the show. And then there was a period of time where I was just making books and I, you know, like you're just kind of setting different goals for yourself. And at that point I said, I've been doing a lot of books. I'd like one of these books to get on the New York Times bestseller list. Like that's, that would be nice, you know? And I remember doing a book with Amit Zappa. It was called uh, Because I'm Your Dad. And I remember it like hit number 10 for like one week. And I'm like, yes, I got it, you know? <laughs> um, and then, and then that shifted from, you know what? I want to be known more as a writer than an illustrator. I don't want to be just known as a guy that paints pretty pictures. Like I'd like people, you know, when people say, oh, Dan Santat is, you know, illustrator, author. Like I would be author, illustrator. I'd like people to be like, oh yeah, his illustrations are great, but his writing's really solid. And, um, you know, I wrote Beagle, won the Caldecott medal in 2015. And that was, that feeling was the feeling that I was hoping for with the cartoon show. Like it was like this, this is actually everything I've ever wanted. It was, it was kind of, it was this feeling of like, this is the 100% pure expression of me in a book form. Mm -hmm. And because you guys all love it and you've, you've honored it with this award that's beyond my ability to comprehend in terms of appreciation, like now I've actually, like, I hate to say it. I really, really hate to say it, but it was like the award made me feel like I was worthy of being an artist. I, I mean, I know we shouldn't be holding anything in in terms of like the weight of awards. Like, you know, you'll hear Neil Neil Young just be like, and your awards are stupid. Like, we don't need awards. And I'm like, yeah, but that award made me feel good about myself. <laughs> but then immediately after that, immediately after winning the award, a self-doubt came in because oh. it suddenly became a question of, wait, did I really earn this? Or was it like politics? Like, did people say like, oh, he's been at this for a long time. He deserves it. his turn, you know? And like imposter syndrome. Impo uh, absolute imposter syndrome. And that was something that I realized that I had, like everything I did was like, they're going to find out that, you know, like I'm really not, you know, all that. They're just, you know, oh, I got one lucky review and then, <laughs> and then and that was that. And so, but there also is a crazy feeling of your entire life wanting to reach the summit of this mountain and then you get to the top of the mountain and then you look around and you think to yourself whoa what do i do now it was like this existential crisis like i don't know what to do with my life because i think i've achieved like the ultimate thing that i've always wanted and so i actually fell into a bout of depression for like a good six seven months Wow. And I was talking to some author friends of mine because there was a lot of there was a lot of feelings of like, well, from now on, all these books that I publish are going to say from Caldecott medalist Dan Santa. And like that automatically puts a label on that book saying this is just as good as this Caldecott medal book. Like like it's something you have to live up to each and every time. And so it really stresses you out. Like it's it's always something you feel like you have to live up to. And um and one of my friends, you know, like he, 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 you know, he, he put it plainly. He said, look, you know, William Shakespeare wrote some great stuff, but he wrote some really crappy stuff too. He wrote Troilus and Cressida. Right. And Not he great. was just like, yeah, <laughs> he was just like, the point is, is that you keep going. 
Sometimes you hit the mark, sometimes you fail miserably, but you keep going. And for some reason, that was like the most, that was the best thing that anybody could have ever told me. And it, it let all the weight off of my shoulders. It's let all that pressure off. Uh, and then, you know, I went on to do other books. Now, one of my proudest books, uh, is, is this book called After the Fall. And it's about Humpty Dumpty. And it's a metaphor about my wife and how she dealt with uh, anxiety and depression. And, um, so that book, you know, although it didn't win any major awards, like on a personal level, like I actually felt like it meant more to me than any book I've ever written. And also, um, on a personal level, I felt like it was a better book than Beekle, you know? So while Beekle is the one that was showered with the award, <laughs> while Beekle is the one that was showered with the award, um, sorry. While Beekle is the one that was showered with the award, After the Fall is the one that's actually the dearest to my heart. Um, it's funny. One thing, when, when you talk about um, finding new um, things towards which to strive, you know, new ambitions, mm-hmm. I really kind of, I love that you are challenging yourself in, in each of those. I mean, I know that the culmination, obviously, in a lot of ways is when winning the award and the external validation, but so much of what you're doing when you're saying, well, I want to be, now I want to be an author, illustrator, or right. now I, it's, you know, it's not waiting for the world to come hand you something. You're challenging yourself to make it manifest. I guess ambition's not the right word. I think optimism is more what I'm intending to say, because... You have to want to look forward to something. Like, I yeah. think that's really kind of the whole point in life. Like, like life is more palatable when you say, like, oh, I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to <laughs> yeah. do that. You know? Um, so with, with, with books, you know, with being an artist, you know, again, you'll have these glorious moments. But, I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. Like, if there's a, if there's a librarian out there listening to this podcast right now, like, honestly, like, my Caldecott model just sits on a shelf collecting dust, and I maybe have looked at it twice, <laughs> you know? And it, it's not about, it's not about, it's not about the award. It's, you know, it's, it's about, like, well, what, what's going to bring me personal joy at this point, you know? And it's like, right now at this point, I want to write a memoir about the first time I fell in love. Yeah. You know? Uh, I mean, I hope people love the book, but if they don't, um, then, you know, hey, I'll try again with something else, you know, and that's, but that's that optimism of saying, okay, this isn't the thing you wanted. How about this? Cause I have another great story. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's, it was this thing where, um, I, I think I'm finally, and this was something I was really bad about all my life. Cause I grew up in a, I grew up in a pretty, uh, like, quiet like 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 farm town you couldn't an asian kid (laughs) an asian kid wouldn't stick out any more in this town and i remember my life had just been a series of like moments where i'm just waiting for something i can't wait to get out of this town yeah i can't wait to graduate from college because i remember having this fear One of the biggest fears, and this is a weird fear, one of the biggest fears I ever had in life was that I was going to be homeless. Like, like I would have absolutely no skills, no value in life. I would just be homeless. And I remember thinking, you know what? This fear will go away once I find myself a job. And I remember just thinking, I can't wait till I can get a job. And I remember getting a job at the video game company. I worked at Activision. 
And I remember getting that job. I'm like, oh my God, thank God. Someone, <laughs> someone finds value in me. Someone find value in me, you know? And so, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's all these, <laughs> it's all these little, yeah, it's all these little goals in life to just stop me from like feeling so like mentally incapable, <laughs> you know? And so I'm, I'm finally at a point where I'm living in the present. I remember I had a friend when who was like really psychoanalyzing, are we there yet? Uh-huh. So the, the premise behind are we there yet? It's about a kid that's on a road trip. And when he gets really bored on the road trip, he gets so bored that he makes time go backwards because it plays on that perception of time where if you're bored, time slows down. But if you're having fun, time speeds up. And so this boy, he gets really bored and he gets so bored that he makes time go back in time. And then in order to get back to the present, he has to have fun. He has to have fun in the moment. And one of my author friend, one of my author friends, he said, this is you, not, this was shortly after winning the Caldecott medal. And he said, this story is about you not enjoying what you've just accomplished. Like wow. you, you were thinking way into the future and you're like worried about the things you did in the past. And he couldn't have been more on the money. And, um, and as a result, I think I got to a point where, with after the fall, I remember thinking is the only next logical goal after winning the Caldecott medal was to win the Caldecott medal again. Like that's, <laughs> that's kind of stupid. Right. And, and so the thing about after the fall was that for me on a personal level, I felt like I managed to make a better book. And so. It's funny because like now in my mind, I've, I've, I've landed in this little bout of writer's block mm-hmm. because when I talk about anticipation, you're always hoping like, I don't know, you never want your, you never want to feel like your career has reached a peak. You always want to feel like your next work's going to be the better work. And I really, I really loved After the Fall. So I'm thinking like, I, I don't want this next book to not be good. And so I've, I've kind of mentally blocked myself from coming up with any other ideas. Uh, and it's, it's taken me like two years to finally come up with a, a new idea. And I've, you know, I've been showing ideas to my editor and she's just been like, Oh, you can do better than this. You can do better than this. And I'm like, Oh gosh, maybe I don't have the stuff. You know, we were talking earlier about the value of just kind of sitting in a space and being bored and letting your mind wander. Yeah. And then just letting your mind connect the dots on its own. And I find, and I used to be one of these, I used to be one of these artists that just would constantly grind at something until you broke through. And I just found that to be exhausting. And it wasn't until, you know, my agent told me, you should take two months off and just enjoy the things you've accomplished that my brain started, you know, wandering. And it was something that I hadn't, experienced in like 10 years and I had forgotten about and just rediscovered the value uh, of those, of those things. And so, I mean, I think there's something about living in the moment now where I'm finally okay with saying it'll come when it's ready. And I've never in my entire life, I've never had, I've never had that feeling before. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like it's the best things that ever happened to me. Like just knowing that, I just think knowing that everything's going to be okay from a personal creative standpoint, like you'll be fine. 
whatever happens, it'll be fine. It's funny, since I've been doing these conversations in the course of recording Wheels Off, that's one of the main things that keeps coming up. Is that right? Is this sort of being in the moment, like the the mindfulness of, right. of, of being here now and not existing in fear of the future or regret right. for the past. But given that, if you could go back... If you could talk to a 21-year-old version of Dan Santat working in today's world, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I would say don't don't work so hard. Like, I mean, it, pay, it paid off. Like, I, I think a lot of the work that I got was from me hustling. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with making a small body of really meaningful work. Um. But also, you know, it's okay to not, it's okay to not participate in something if you don't want to. There's, there's, I guess what I would say to myself is, you know, like you're, you're going to be okay. No matter what you do, you're going to be okay. I've had friends who are freelancing or even people who just started freelancing You know, they're always terrified of leaving that nine to five job. Like, can I do this? Can I do this? I found that the majority of people who freelance, if they truly, really, really want to be freelancers, they find ways to make it work. You know, it's really a state of mind. It's like, you know, you can do this if you want to. You just have to, you know, if you have to cut back on expenses, if you just have to work harder, there are ways to do it. It just, it just really depends on how badly you want it. Um... And yeah, I mean, knowing specifically 21-year-old Dan, 21-year-old Dan was still trying to get his microbiology degree. And become a dentist. <laughs> yeah, and I'd say, listen, 21-year-old Dan, you need to listen to your friends, go to art school. In fact, if I met if I met 18-year-old Dan, if I could go back in time and meet 18-year-old Dan, I'd be like, don't go, don't go, there. don't go to college, just go to art school. I wonder if there's a lesson in there. If, if all of your friends are telling you something about yourself that they see but you refuse to see. I mean, you, you don't necessarily have to listen to everything everybody tells you, but what if there's a consensus like that? There was something funny about that because I, I was writing this in a, I was writing this in my graphic novel about there's that old, there's that old saying that your parents always threw in your face like, oh, if all your friends jumped off a cliff, would you? Yeah. And I remember, I remember thinking, you know, all my friends are pretty smart. Like if they're all jumping off a cliff, it must be for a good reason. <laughs> Like, I'm not going to stand there and be like, oh, there's my friend who, who, who graduated magnum cum laude. He jumped off the cliff. Like, he's insane. Like, no, I'm pretty sure there must be like a giant dragon coming our way. I'm going to take my chances jumping off this cliff. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I feel like this has been really great. I feel like you have so much to offer. I love if anybody listening ever gets a chance to see Dan do uh, a book presentation, seeing you in front of adults is great, but especially in front of kids. You're just you're so natural and funny. And thank, you. and thank God you have that outlet because you just in your office might be a waste of a God given talent to like, you know, really make people laugh. Thank and, you very much. Thank you. But you make a lot of joy regardless of whether it's on the page or in person. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank Wheels you. off. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or 
anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.